What's good, everybody? I'm Bruce Hope, and you're now listening to episode one of my podcast. This is something I've been thinking about doing for a long time. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but now it's my turn to be on the other side of the mic talking to you. Just a little bit about me. I'm an Army veteran, an IT professional, a communication student, and an aspiring member of the sports media. So this is my opportunity to get to talk to you and share my thoughts on sports, mainly football and basketball. I've got a whole lot swirling around in my head, so hopefully you'll relax and enjoy it while I share some of it with you. I'm pretty sure that during this podcast, I'm going to say some things you might not agree with, but that's cool. Hopefully, I can still give you something to think about. Here's a little tease. Wayne, the great one Gretzky versus Michael Air Jordan. Stick around and we'll get into that and a whole lot more. Anyway, without further ado, let's get to it. The very first episode of the format. So let's get into some college football. So we're now heading into week 11 of the college football season, and we're really kind of seeing the teams that we expect to be pretty much the cream of the crop starting to truly separate themselves. Um, You're seeing Alabama, which most everyone thought was the best team in the country for the entirety of the season, really uh, just look even better than ever because we know that we can always expect an outstanding defense from Nick Saban. We can always expect a strong running game uh, just by virtue of the kind of NFL mindset that he has, as well as um, the type of athletes that he's able to recruit year in and year out, you know, on the back of his continual championship level successes. But the difference in Alabama this season is that we're seeing with Tua Tagovailoa firmly entrenched at the quarterback position for the first time in Saban's tenure an absolutely explosive big play pass offense. And that makes them just so much more dangerous and that much harder to defend. Now, we watched as they went into a hostile Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge to play LSU, uh, fully expecting the usual slugfest. But as usual, the LSU offense could not keep up to the tune of zero points in this game, actually, while their defense did everything they could. The defense was able to slow down Alabama for a bit, as they usually are. But at the end of the day, if you can't put up points, your defense is going to get tired. And eventually, they're going to crack. And crack they did. So we saw Tua throw his first interception of the season. But what we also saw was Tua, in an absolutely explosive running play, take off and just smoke the entire LSU defense for a long touchdown run during which he apparently tweaked his knee, as we saw in the uh, celebration following that touchdown. He also threw an absolutely beautiful touchdown pass to the uh, corner of the end zone and scored another one. So he had one turnover, which is going to happen. You can't expect any quarterback, college, high school, or professional to make it through an entire season without turning the ball over at least once. Um, 
And that may be testament to LSU's defense. I think what we saw there was, as usual, they have the athletes to physically line up and match up with Alabama. They were able to get a little bit more pressure on Tua than we've seen all year. And they were able, as I said, to get an interception off of him. But at the end of the day, they just got no help from their offense. They couldn't pass it. They couldn't run it. And uh, what we ended up seeing was a 29 to nothing beatdown uh, by Alabama. And that, realistically, should be their toughest matchup of the year. Um, now, they've clinched the SEC West with that victory and will go into the SEC championship game against Georgia, favored, as they have been in all their games this season. Um, it should be an interesting matchup for sure. Georgia is another team has tremendous athletes, can really run the football and can throw it as well with some great uh, talent on the outside. But if you do the history on it, Nick Saban has never lost a game in college to one of his former assistants. So it could be a very problematic thing to think that Georgia is going to win that football game. Again, Alabama is going to be favored, but Georgia also matches up quite well with them as Kirby Smart's done a tremendous job in trying to mirror uh, the way that he built his program, you know, to Alabama as he was there and he was a defensive coordinator, an outstanding defensive coordinator for a number of years. So it should be a great matchup to see. But again, Alabama has to be the prohibitive favorite uh, in every game for the rest of the season, including heading into the college football playoffs, which they're pretty much all but a lot to get into. I, I would wager that even if they were to somehow slip up and lose in the SEC title game, that the SEC would probably end up fielding two teams in the tournament again, just like last year, and that would be Bama and Georgia. But we'll have to wait and see. It, it looks like it's going to be very interesting. So talking about the rest of the top four as it currently stands, the new ratings come out tomorrow night, uh, Tuesday, November 6th. But as the rest of it stands, Clemson absolutely demolished. I mean, put an absolute beat down on Louisville to the tune of 77 points. Now, that almost looks like a basketball score. Earlier in the year, we may have had some concerns about Clemson, um, you know, when they really just barely escaped with a win against Syracuse, um, at Syracuse, tough one. But it looks like uh, true freshman QB Trevor Lawrence has really kind of gotten into the flow of things, and he's really doing a great job playing and leading this team. Uh, also, we know that Clemson, as well physically, has the athletes to match up with any team in the country. That defensive line is just absolutely nightmarish. They look like they have uh, two interior linemen that are going to play on Sundays. And um, they're really doing an outstanding job running the football as well. So Clemson is absolutely dangerous. And it doesn't look like there's going to be a team in the ACC who can trip them up in terms of uh, the conference title game and getting into the playoffs. So that should be interesting. Now, moving on to the number three team currently in the college football playoff rankings, that would be LSU, who we discussed earlier. And barring absolute insanity, I would I would wager that it is going to be 99.99999% impossible that they could find their way back into the top four of the uh, college football playoff rankings for an opportunity to play for the national championship. 
number one, they were just uh, beaten badly on their own uh, home field by Alabama on Saturday night, 29 nothing. And number two, they already have two losses uh, on their schedule. And a two-loss team hasn't, as of yet, made it into the college football playoff in um, any of the previous years. So I think we can go ahead and expect them to fall right out, which makes room, actually, for the University of Notre Dame fighting Irish, who were previously ranked at number four, to probably jump up into that number three slot. Now, Notre Dame just played uh, a tough game against a very game Northwestern squad. Now, Northwestern is a team that actually beat Wisconsin earlier this year. And while Wisconsin isn't what they were last year, we still know they're a very sound and uh, relatively good football team. And they took Michigan into the deep waters before losing to them. Um, So what we've got here is a Notre Dame team that's undefeated, hasn't necessarily played the most difficult schedule, but the best win they still have on their schedule is having beaten uh, Michigan in week one, uh, a Michigan team who hasn't lost since. So as long as Michigan keeps winning, that should be great for Notre Dame in terms of boosting strength of schedule. Now, when the season started and the schedule was announced for Notre Dame, you know, we looked at some of the teams on there. We looked at Virginia Tech, who Notre Dame went to Blacksburg and beat. We looked at Stanford, who came to uh, Notre Dame Stadium and lost. We looked at Michigan, as we mentioned, who Notre Dame beat in the opener. We looked at uh, Florida State. We look at USC, who Notre Dame still has to go to in the season finale in a rivalry game. And we say, there's some really good teams on this schedule. Unfortunately, Notre Dame's opponents have not done their job in terms of continuing to win and helping to boost Notre Dame's strength of schedule. Now, obviously, they're not continuing to win with Notre Dame in mind, but you know when they lose uh, and don't play as well as they were expected to prior to the season, that's going to not exactly help Notre Dame. The other point of issue for Notre Dame is the fact that being a major independent, they don't have an actual conference affiliation despite their nominal affiliation with the ACC, which forces them to play five conference games a year. Now, they've maintained their independent status so that they can continue to have all the traditional games that they have, whether it's a Michigan or a Michigan State or what have you. But that hurts in that no matter how good they are, they're not going to have the opportunity to play for the ACC championship game. So if they should slip up somewhere, they're going to end up 11-1 and one and don't have what is referred to as the 13th data point, which would be a championship game appearance or a possible championship game win in order to further sway the uh, voters on the college football playoff committee who are going to choose those final four spots to play for a national championship. So that's tough. Notre Dame's got to keep winning out. The general feeling, though, among college football uh, pundits is that should Notre Dame continue to win out, they're almost a lock for getting into the uh, final four, which would be the uh, college football playoff. Now, moving on to that, uh, what would be the number four spot? I would say if it was me and I was a member of that committee, I would absolutely be looking towards Michigan. Michigan has been outstanding all season following that game one loss to Notre Dame. Michigan actually lost that game, the opener, 24-17 to at Notre Dame. And 
really, outside of a strong first quarter by Notre Dame, the rest of the game was pretty much deadlocked. Now, since then, they've absolutely come on strong. The offense is rounded into shape. And defensive coordinator Don Brown has them playing arguably the best defense in the country. They're shutting teams down. It's really hard to run on them. It's really hard to pass on them. They're getting after the quarterback. They have tremendous athletes, and they're great schematically. Now, I guess what we all look at is the measuring sticks, the Alabamas and the Clemsons. As great as Michigan's defense is, would they be able to match up if they had to go against an Alabama or a Clemson? That's left to be seen. Right now, though, Michigan probably isn't focused on that, knowing that they've got a couple of uh, big games remaining. Um, To end the regular season, they have to go to the horseshoe and play uh, their hated rival, Ohio State. Jim Harbaugh was uh, on something of a hot seat uh, coming into this season. So that's three years in, and he hasn't yet beaten Ohio State. And really, that is one of the uh, most important aspects of being a Michigan head coach, is that you can be as great as you want to be, but you have to, at some point, beat Ohio State and then start beating them with regularity. That can cost you a job. When the Wolverines come into the shoe, Urban Meyer is going to have his guys ready to go. So that should be a heck of a football game. We're definitely uh, waiting to see that one. That's kind of going to be one of the biggest games of the regular season. Just kind of rounding out the college football talk. A couple more things in terms of uh, who's going to make it into the Final Four. This thing is far from over. We've got a lot of things still going on. If Oklahoma goes ahead and wins the Big 12, there's going to be an argument for Oklahoma, you know, with one loss. If Ohio State should beat Michigan and end up winning the Big 10, there still could be an argument for Ohio State getting in. So we still have a lot of things to play out, and uh, we will see what happens in terms of who gets into the Final Four. All right. And um, this is my last thought. I want to talk about the college football playoff itself. So, as we know, the college football playoff allows for four teams. That's fine. At least we have a playoff. We've cried for years for a playoff, right? But in true human nature, now we're upset because four teams isn't enough because we're seeing the kind of um, fallibility of the four-team system. And there's a couple of things to that. One of my biggest arguments is that You have a college football playoff committee. So when we had the BCS, everything was, you know, you had the BCS formula system computerized. And uh, we argued because we said, okay, that takes the human element, the eye test element out of picking who plays for the championship. But now we've gone too far back the other way, in my opinion, because you have the college football playoff committee, which is going to choose the final four teams who are going to play for the national championship. And I feel like there's not enough accountability there. Why do I say there's not enough accountability? Because you have a situation where the playoff committee has not officially set down standardized criteria for why they would include teams and not include others. And if they have, they haven't made it transparent to us, the fans and the media, so that we can hold them accountable. Of course, that's probably by design, right? So me, I'm a proponent of six or a maximum of eight teams. That way, theoretically, no one who deserves to be in gets left out, and there's a legitimate chance 
to have the absolute best, or maybe just the hottest, but the best team win the national championship. This is a big concern to me because you have a team like UCF who legitimately could go undefeated for two years straight and not even have an opportunity to play for the championship. I find that utterly ridiculous. You have situation where when the college football playoffs started, one of the things we were told by the committee was that their decision-making would place a premium on who you play out of conference. So out of conference scheduling is a big deal. But when you look at it, for instance, playoff mainstay Alabama, great program and a great team with a great coach, but they absolutely refuse to play a tough, true, non-conference road game. But yet, they're not being penalized for that. Wouldn't it be great for college football if Alabama was to go to the Horseshoe and play Ohio State or go to the Big House and play Michigan? You don't think that would be outstanding for college football? I happen to think it would be fantastic. If you look at it, no SEC team plays any true non-conference road game outside of the South, and that's odd to me. Look at this year's kickoff classic. Washington came down from Seattle and played Auburn in Atlanta. Now, that's great that both teams decided to go ahead and play that game, but at the end of the day, that's just a glorified home game for Auburn because you still have all those SEC fans, and it's much less of a travel distance for an Auburn fan to go to Atlanta than a Washington fan to come from Seattle down to Atlanta. So I just think it's something that bears thinking about. So let's get into some round ball talk here. In terms of the NBA, there's definitely some major storylines going on this season that are pretty interesting. Probably the biggest one would be the move of LeBron James for the first time in his career to the Western Conference to play with the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, not sure exactly what he was doing in terms of roster building in LA, but we'll get to that in a bit. The second one would be the storyline of the uh, Warriors chasing history in terms of getting a three-peat, three championships in three years, and a fourth in five years, and where that would place them in terms of history's all-time great teams. I think that when we talk about the Warriors' place among the all-time great teams, I've actually heard it said that should they win this year, and especially should they win maybe even close to or setting a single-season wins record, that you should consider them the all-time best team in history. I think that's an interesting take. Um, the team that they are most closely compared to historically are the 1996 Chicago Bulls, who previously held the single-season wins record at 72 and went on to win the championship. I think that when you talk about comparing those two teams, the most fun thing that we do is saying, if they were to play each other, who would win? The first thing that we need to do is identify which set of rules we're going with. Are we going with the rules in 2018, which have basically eliminated defense from the NBA to allow for a more crowd-pleasing style of point scoring and uh, freedom of movement? Or are we going with um, the more physical style of the 1996 Bulls, which contest a great offensive team? 
Because if an offensive team can be great against more physical defense, then we truly know just how great they are. If it's me and I say these two teams are playing each other, what I would say in terms of the rules are you go 50-50. You don't go all the way towards the Bulls and you don't go all the way towards the Warriors either, right? So if not the hand check, you at least allow the forearm check. You are uh, a little less quick with the whistle and a little more liberal in terms of what you call a foul if you're an official. You have to look at it. Those Bulls are widely regarded as the greatest team of all time, not just because they won, not just because they have arguably the greatest player of all time in Michael Jordan, but because of what they had to go through in that era to get there, right? Clearly that era wasn't as uh, heavily reliant on the three-point shot as this era is. So that was more along the lines back then of the traditional school of thought in basketball, get the highest percentage shot available, the three-pointer is an extra weapon. But you have to look at it. To me, it's, it tells you how great those teams were, how great those guys were, and how great Michael Jordan was because they had to deal with defense, as I mentioned earlier, and they had to deal with tremendous all-time great rim protection. When Steph Curry gets to the rim nowadays, he normally has a layup. He rarely has anyone contesting. When Michael Jordan went to the rim, who did he meet there? Patrick Ewing. Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning, Shaquille O'Neal, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson. You see where I'm going with this? All-time great rim protectors and shot blockers, which made it all the more incredible the way he was able to finish at the basket. You can't blame the Warriors for the era that they're in. They can only do what they can and dominate this era, and that's fine. But to say that they're the greatest team of all time is a stretch. But anyway, back to the discussion of if they were to play each other. I think the 96 Bulls are probably the absolute best matchup for this Warriors team. And the reason why is this Warriors team, I think, is without a doubt the greatest perimeter offensive team we've ever seen in NBA history, champion or not. The way they can move, the way they can cut, the way they can score at the rim, again, with uh, absolutely less rim protection, but the way they can shoot the basketball from range taxes and stresses defenses in ways that basketball defenses were not meant to be taxed and stressed. Now, when you look at it, the 96 Bulls are arguably the greatest perimeter defensive team of all time. So you have the greatest perimeter offensive team versus the greatest perimeter defensive team. We know Michael Jordan is nine times All-NBA first-team defense. We know that when he retired, he was second all-time in steals. We know that Scottie Pippen is widely regarded as an all-time great perimeter defender. We know that Ron Harper, once he got to the Bulls, kind of had gotten past the high-flying ways that he had in uh, uh, Cleveland and with the Clippers and had turned into an outstanding perimeter defender, right? So now we take it and we look at the matchups. You put Ron Harper on Steph Curry, Steph Curry may not be doing what he's doing now. He most likely isn't. Ron Harper at that age probably wasn't going to hound Steph Curry for 94 feet. But I can guarantee you that as soon as he got across half court, Ron Harper would have picked him up and made it much more difficult for him to come across half court, stop a dribble or two past the center court logo, and launch one of those ridiculously ranged threes that he is so great at knocking down. Then you look at the matchup of Michael Jordan versus Klay Thompson. 
the defensive prowess plus the overall edge and athleticism, Michael Jordan would make it tremendously difficult for Klay Thompson to get off. So if Michael Jordan's defending him, I'm pretty sure there's no 37-point quarters. I'm pretty sure there's no 14 made threes in a game or 52 points on 30 dribbles. There's not going to be any of that. That's Michael Jordan. And then on the other end, as outstanding a defender as Klay Thompson is, he wouldn't know what to do with Michael Jordan in the low post, the mid post, or the high post. Michael Jordan would absolutely cook Klay Thompson alive. You already have two positions here with an advantage to the Bulls. Finally, you have the third position, the small forward, Scottie Pippen on Kevin Durant, which would be an absolutely amazing matchup in of itself. When you look at Scottie being regarded as one of the all-time great defenders and having tremendous length, Kevin Durant could probably still get 30 against Scottie Pippen, but it would take him closer to 30 shots. He would not be able to have that tremendous offensive efficiency that he's known for. Scotty would make it so difficult on him that it would be much tougher. Draymond Green is the heartbeat of the Golden State Warriors. He's the tough guy. He's also the glue guy. He's also the Swiss Army knife of that squad. He can rebound the basketball. He can bring the ball up the floor and initiate offense. He can assist the basketball. He can defend the basketball. He can do all these things. The only problem is he'd be matched up with the worm. Hall of Fame Dennis Rodman, outstanding rebounder and outstanding individual man or defender. Chances are he would take Draymond completely out of his game mentally and take Draymond out of anything he's trying to do. Draymond wouldn't be able to initiate the break or initiate the offense because Dennis Rodman would dominate the glass, not allowing for those offensive rebound opportunities or defensive rebound opportunities that the Warriors thrive on in terms of getting out in transition and shooting threes. So while the Warriors are outstanding and they are tremendous, tremendous team, to say that they're the greatest team of all time and able to beat the 96 Bulls, well, we'll never know because they can't play them. But just looking at the breakdown I just gave you, I'd say it was highly unlikely. I see that the Warriors may be able to get them to seven games, something no other team was ever able to do against Michael Jordan in the finals. But at the end of the day, they just couldn't beat him. Because there's one more thing that we're forgetting about, the intangibles. When it came to winning, Michael Jordan was a complete and total psychopath, and he would do anything it took to win. Because on the biggest stage, he simply refused to lose. And that's it. So when it comes to it, I'm absolutely going to give the benefit to the 96 Bulls in a close series maybe even seven games, but the Warriors just couldn't beat them. I just don't think they're tough enough, and the Bulls match up too perfectly with all their length on the perimeter. Now, away from speculation on games and series that would never happen, those are fun to talk about. But now let's talk about LeBron James, because we can't have any basketball discussion without talking about LeBron, right? It's interesting. What we're seeing now, first let me say, I'm thoroughly surprised that LeBron James actually came to the West I never saw that as something it would happen. I felt like he was always comfortable staying in the East, knowing that that was a conference that for the most part he could dominate, as is evidenced by his eight straight NBA Finals appearances, right? So you've got to respect that, but he did play in the weaker conference. So he manned up and he came to see if he could deal with the best of the West, which I think is very interesting. That said, the Lakers are not in the greatest position right now. 
and uh, they're definitely having some trouble, and they're trying to, uh, you know, get things rolling their way, trying to get the team continuity together, and and getting some uh, getting some winning situations. Right now, the Lakers are four and six overall, and fourth in the Pacific Division. Now, why is this significant? A lot of people who love LeBron and who are fans, they'll say, don't worry about it. LeBron's with a new team. He's taking time to get the team together. The, the players have to learn how to play with him. It's a growing process, so on and so forth. I would go with all that, and that's fine, except they're in the West. There's no time to be losing games in the Western Conference and hoping that you'll make them up later. Last season in the West, if I'm not mistaken, the final uh, four playoff spots, I believe, were separated by like four games. So you have to look at it. There's no room, no margin for error in the Western Conference, which is why I thought it was very interesting that LeBron, number one, came West, and number two, came West knowing that he doesn't have what he needs on that roster. What does he need on that roster? One or two more superstars. That's what he needs on that roster. For someone who's supposed to be the king, for someone who people argue is the GOAT, and don't get me wrong, his statistical production over his career is a marvel. But for those things, why does he always need one or two more superstars in order to be successful? Carry your team. Now people are going to say right now, Bruce, you're a hater. You hate LeBron. I don't know LeBron. I don't hate LeBron. But I come from an era where guys wanted to compete and they didn't have to team up all the time. So let me give you an example. LeBron is supposed to be the best player in the world. Okay, I'll give you that. Let's say he's the best player in the world. Let's say he's the GOAT. I don't agree, but a lot of people say he's the GOAT. So let's name him the GOAT for the purpose of this discussion. That's fine. So you're all these things, but you always need all this help. And then when it doesn't happen, it's someone else's fault. But when they win, you get all the credit, right? Okay, so let's look at this. I saw a meme online. And it showed Hakeem Olajuwon, who coincidentally happens to be my favorite player of all time, and LeBron James. And the point of the meme was, it said, in 1994, Hakeem Olajuwon's first NBA championship, the first year that Michael Jordan wasn't in the game for his two-year sabbatical, um, it said, in 1994, Hakeem Olajuwon played on a team which had no Hall of Famers and no All-Stars. And this is something I've pointed out to other people in different uh, discussions multiple times. And with that roster, Hakeem Olajuwon won an NBA championship and an NBA MVP. I'm sure you're asking right now, why is that significant? I'll tell you why that's significant. Because on his way to that championship, in the first round, Hakeem Olajuwon played and defeated the Portland Trailblazers with his former college teammate and Hall of Famer and NBA Dream Teamer, Clyde the Glide Drexler. In the second round, he beat the Phoenix Suns, who had 1992-93 NBA MVP and future Hall of Famer Charles Barkley, as well as All-Star Kevin Johnson, former All-Star Tom Chambers, and former All-Star Dan Marley. In the conference finals, he beat the Utah Jazz, who had Hall of Fame coach Jerry Sloan, as well as Hall of Fame duo John Stockton and second all-time leading scorer in NBA history, Karl Malone. In the NBA Finals, he faced the New York Knicks, where he beat all-star 
Dream Team member, Hall of Famer, Patrick Ewing. If you do the math on this, through Hakeem Olajuwon's playoff run in 1994, he defeated 41% of the Dream Team, which is the greatest team ever assembled in the history of team sports. This is not me saying it. That's widely held stance. So he beat 41% of the Dream Team on his way to the championship without an All-Star and without a Hall of Famer on his team. I say that to say, if you're the GOAT LeBron and you're the King LeBron, why can't you do the same? Put your team on your back, carry them, and win these championships. But that's neither here nor there. At the end of the day, I just find it interesting that LeBron has brought his talents to Los Angeles, the Western Conference, which is something I never thought he'd do. So I give him credit for that. He's going with the big boys now. But here's another thing. I'm wondering, we know that LeBron has a lot of input on roster moves made by his teams. So we know that he had a lot of input on the bringing of Rajon Rondo to this team, Lance Stevenson to this team, Michael Beasley to this team. None of that fits with the way LeBron has played throughout his career. He already has a true point guard who's not particularly a shooter, although he has been shooting better this season in Lonzo Ball, a guy who needs the ball in his hands to be effective. He brings Rajon Rondo, another true point guard who needs the basketball in his hands to be effective. He brings Lance Stevenson, another guy who's not particularly a shooter, can make a shot at times, also needs the ball in his hands to be effective. And he brings Michael Beasley, a guy who can play but hasn't made nearly the splash or the impact during his NBA career that he was expected to after an outstanding, if not brief, career in college at Kansas State University. The point I'm trying to make here is LeBron throughout his career has been a player, and you can see his usage rates to verify this, who needs the basketball in his hand to be effective. He has to dominate the ball at all times, and that's a big part of his statistical brilliance throughout the course of his career. So why would he have two two-point guards who can't shoot and these other characters on his team? As well, if you look LeBron through most of his time in Cleveland and his time in Miami, he likes to have the ball at the top, push the ball towards the rim, and make decisions on kickouts for guys who are merely sitting around waiting to shoot threes. This is damaging to the development of younger players, and it's also damaging to the play of veterans who have already established their game in other places. Guys will put up with it because they think that playing with LeBron is an opportunity to win championships, which for a three and five finals record with eight appearances, that's probably a little misleading in terms of playing with LeBron, you win a championship. Playing with LeBron, you have an opportunity to win a championship, but clearly by the mathematics of it all, you're more likely than not not to. So I really think it's interesting that He makes questionable roster moves. And I can surmise, based on his history and based on these roster moves, one of those point guards will be traded by the end of the season. As well, as we've heard in the media, Luke Walton, the head coach, has already been admonished by uh, Magic Johnson for the team's slow start. He's most likely going to become a casualty of LeBron James as well. I mean, that's just it at the end of the day. LeBron gets coaches fired. We know this. LeBron gets guys traded. We know this. LeBron, when he loses, never shares any of the blame. But when he wins, it's all LeBron. It's got to be incredibly frustrating to play with this guy. And that's also in evidence that Jimmy Butler has an opportunity to come play with him. 
according to what's been reported, he's not interested. Kawhi Leonard, not interested. Um, it's a possibility that Anthony Davis, after having signed with uh, Clutch Sports, that he may end up in L.A. via some sort of huge trade. That's possible. But what we're seeing is that guys don't necessarily want to be there to play with him because they see all that comes with it. Paul George, he grew up a Lakers fan. That's his pretty much hometown team. During his offseason recruitment period, he didn't even take a meeting with the Lakers and immediately signed back with Oklahoma City to play with Russell Westbrook. That's interesting, isn't it? Another interesting thing I want to point out about LeBron real quick, despite his tremendous talent, despite his ability to carry a team, not always to a championship, but to, you know, championship level heights, at least in the East anyway, LeBron, when he leaves, leaves the team in shambles. And people would look at that and point to it to say, well, that's just his greatness. You lose a player of that caliber, you're going to suffer. But could it be that LeBron doesn't play within a system? LeBron is the system. So on one hand, you say, well, that speaks to his greatness. Well, maybe it doesn't. His inability to play within a system and being the system doesn't empower other players and doesn't allow other players to learn how to be great unless they are an individually great player on their own prior to his arrival, right? So that puts you in a position with what we now see in Cleveland. Cleveland is an absolute dumpster fire. And people are going to say, well, Dan Gilbert didn't want to help him. The management didn't do anything. Well, Dan Gilbert was in the luxury tax for the duration of LeBron's second term in Cleveland. He gave LeBron everything he wanted, right? But now LeBron's gone and the team is in the toilet. Might be something you want to think about. I know people are saying, you're a hater. You hate LeBron. But why is it that I'm not just being objective when it comes to LeBron? At the end of the day, he may be the all-time leading scorer in history. That may happen. At the end of the day, he may have a couple more titles. I don't think that's going to happen. He's going to finish with three. Maybe he gets to the finals and fails again. Maybe he doesn't get to the finals at all anymore because he's now in the West. But history is not going to remember all these little nuggets and nuances and context that I'm giving you regarding LeBron James. But if you're around now and you've watched his career and you're watching his career now, Pay attention to what I'm telling you, because this stuff is true. This is not me hating. This is me being objective. Because let me remind you, if you notice, I've said LeBron is a tremendous player. He is amazing statistically, and he's going to go down all-time great. A lot of people have him as number two all-time. I personally don't. Um, that's a discussion for another day. But um, I think it's just a very interesting thing that we need to look at. So I'll close this portion of the show was basically saying, listen back to what I said about Hakeem Olajuwon and what he did in 94. If you're the king, LeBron, if you're the GOAT, put your team on your back, carry him like Dream did, and get the job done. Before we get out of here, I'm going to give you my final segment of the show, and it's called The Bruce Breakdown. Thanks, Tim. So when it comes to sports in North America, we hear a lot of debate about who's the GOAT. Mostly we hear, is it LeBron or is it MJ? I side with MJ. Other times we hear, is it Brady or is it Rogers? I side with Brady. But for me, I'm going to take you on a kind of different twist with this GOAT discussion. Most people you ask are going to say, the greatest of all time in North American professional team sports is Michael Jordan. And there's a lot of good reasons to feel that way. And, you know... That's the great thing about these debates. 
I guess no one's really right or really wrong. It all has to go with what you think and how well you can articulate your point and what evidence you have to back it up. But as I said, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. For me, when I think about the greatest of all time in North American professional team sports, it's not Michael Jordan. It's not Tom Brady. It's one that we don't often think about in the United States. The greatest of all time in North American professional team sports is the great one, Wayne Gretzky. Yes, I said it, the great one, Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player of all time. I know a lot of people are going crazy right now. He said Gretzky. Yes, I said Gretzky. And let me break down why. When we talk about the greatest basketball player of all time, there's debate. A lot of people say MJ. Some people say LeBron. You talk to older people from previous generations, they may say Big O. They may say Kareem. Some may say Wilt. Some may say Bill Russell. But there's actually debate as to who's the greatest basketball player of all time. When you say who's the greatest football player of all time, there's a lot of debate. Most people can't even identify who's the greatest quarterback of all time for so much debate. Some say Joe Montana. Some say Aaron Rodgers. Some say Tom Brady. When some people talk about the greatest football player of all time, they say Jim Brown. Others say Jerry Rice. I've heard Lawrence Taylor. I've heard John Elway. The point I'm trying to make here is when we talk about the greatest player in the history of North American professional team sports, there's always a debate. Except, of course, when it comes to hockey. Let me break this down for you. Wayne Gretzky, as I said, is the greatest player in the history of North American professional team sports. And you know why? There is no one else close as a hockey player. And I can back that up. He has a record nine NHL Most Valuable Player awards. Four of the top ten single season records for goals scored. Gretzky. 894 career goals. Number one. By far. 1,963 career assists. Number one. By far. But here's an interesting point on that. He has more assists in his career than anyone else has points. 10 of the top 12 single season assist totals. Gretzky. Points per game. The top two seasons. Three of the top five. Seven of the top 10. And 11 of the top 20 seasons with highest points per game average. You guessed it. All Gretzky. Eight of the top 10 all-time assists per game seasons, Gretzky, 11 of the top 15, and the top seven on that list, all Wayne Gretzky. But most importantly, what we need to look at is this. When Wayne Gretzky retired, they immediately waived the five-year wait period for Hall of Fame induction. He was inducted immediately. Michael Jordan can't claim that. Tom Brady won't be able to claim that. And when he retired... The entire National Hockey League retired the number 99, his jersey number, as in no one who plays in the National Hockey League will ever again wear the number 99 of the great one. So when it comes down to it and someone asks you, who is the greatest player in the history of North American professional team sports? Answer them simply, the great one. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch me right here next week. Be back to drop some knowledge on you. Definitely talk some NFL as well as some NBA and some college football. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a line or argue about something I said, or just hear my thoughts on what's going on in general, you can follow me on Twitter 
at Mr. Many Facts. That's at Mr. Many Facts. Thanks. See ya.